Hey guys. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Texas is a big old state. That means there's a whole lot of people and not one of them talks the same as the rest. From the West Texas drawl that you'll hear from my guest today to the East Texas twang you've heard from many of my others, down to the southernmost areas of Tejano and Cajun, there's no shortage of unique dialects and southern accents to celebrate. And I want you all, my listeners, to be a part of that celebration. Starting today, no matter where you live, no matter where you're from, North, Central, or South America, or not America at all, if you've ever been told you have an accent, show it off on the show. Here's what I'm talking about. In just a minute, you're going to hear my buddy Cliff from Mississippi give my signature warning. If you'd like to be the next one to warn other listeners on what they're about to hear, email me a clear recording of yourself similar to Cliff's at lonelaw18 at gmail.com. Each episode, I'll give them all a listen and pick the best one. And it just might be yours. So one more time, that's all lowercase letters LoneLaw18 at gmail.com. All right, Cliff, take her away. Hey there, folks. This is Cliff from Mississippi. The following podcast contains graphic descriptions of violence and is definitely not suitable for all listeners. In other words, don't say she didn't warn you. Ah, it's summertime in Texas. When the wildflowers of the spring like the bluebonnets and wisteria have faded and are replaced by the almost intoxicating perfume of the summer blooms like the sweet honeysuckle that relaxes the mind and body when it fills the occasional breeze with its fragrance. It's the season for barbecues, beer, sweet tea, and front porch sitting. For many, a chorus of insects is the most reliable sign of summer. You could almost keep the time by the tune of their unique songs. The mid-morning and late-afternoon songs of the mockingbird begin to swell with the hum of the southern cicadas that last well into the evenings with intermittent fillers of splashing and laughter from children playing in the sprinklers or one of our many natural swimming holes. At dusk, the male crickets take the lead with their mating call, signaling the end of playtime for the day. And later into the night, a choir of whistling spring peepers, quacking tree frogs, and katydids take over and sing to the wee hours of the morning. There's just no time quite like summertime in Texas. Ah, who are we kidding? It's hot as hell down here. Summer in Texas is synonymous with scorching temperatures, searing heat, clothes drenched in sweat, and the occasional sunburn. Summertime in Texas is not a joke. It affects everything Texans do. Our customs, our movements, the houses we live in, the clothes we wear, the food we eat. Every year, our battle against the heat literally saps our bodies, our minds, and as our electric bills will show, our money. 
appetite decreases, focus decreases, and irritability increases. We become more sluggish during the days and more restless at night. We eat later at night when it's dropped a few degrees outside to avoid using our appliances any earlier than necessary. And because, well, who's really hungry when it's that damn hot? Even the rules of the road change. Try not to drive during the hottest parts of the day to avoid the heat eating up your gas. When you're not driving, don't leave anything that can possibly melt in your car. Not even for five minutes, or chances are you're looking at a mess. If you don't crack your windows, you may as well be baking yourself in an oven. And you will get burned. By the seatbelt, that is. And the leather seats. And the steering wheel. A lot of people like to have remote ignition starters for the wintertime. But Texans need them for the summer to make our mobile ovens bearable before we get in. It's not uncommon to hear a Texan cursing at their car. Even the tar on the road softens and sticks to your tires. During the cooler months, people will circle a parking lot about 20 times to get that parking spot as close to the door as they can. But during the summer, the game changes. Texans park in the shade, no matter what it takes. It doesn't matter how far you have to walk to get into the store, you park in the shade. These are just the rules of summer, all over Texas. But given the physical size of Texas, there are different kinds of hot. The kind of hot I'm talking about is Deep East Texas hot. East Texas, which makes up about a third of the state, is within the humid subtropical climate zone. If you ask me, it's subtropical and that it gets all the humidity of the coastal region, but none of that ocean breeze gets beyond the Pine Curtain. Even other Texans underestimate the heat in East Texas. There's no way to get a grasp on how hot it is here until you experience it for yourself. Even as I sit writing this intro, coming up on mid-June, it's still 85 degrees at 10 o'clock at night after a high of 96 on a partly cloudy day. By the 4th of July, no East Texan is surprised to see a temperature of 100 degrees still lingering by 7 p.m. We're going to complain about it for sure, but we won't be surprised. It's not necessarily the temperature itself, though, that you have to watch out for. It's the feels-like part of the forecast, otherwise known as the heat index, that's dangerous. Now, the heat index is a combination of the temperature and the humidity in the air that makes it feel a lot hotter than it really is. For example, it might actually only be 89 degrees outside, but it feels like 100 because of the humidity on that particular day. And it's always humid down here. From around May through August, the humidity can be almost unbearable. Just downright oppressive. Now, the magical thing that is the human body has a built-in defense that's designed to combat the heat. Perspiration is the body's attempt to keep itself cool and maintain its optimal temperature. In order to do that, the skin relies on the air to get rid of the sweat. So in other parts of the state and country, people might be able to rely on that process to cool them off. But it doesn't quite work that way around these parts. In order for the evaporative cooling process to work, the atmosphere has to be able to absorb moisture. But the higher the humidity, the less moisture can be absorbed. So the sweat begins to collect on the skin, blocking further perspiration, and then the sweat itself adds to the body heat. So the moment you step outside the house, 
You're covered in sweat that slides down your back like syrup. And you just end up saturated with sweat that doesn't go anywhere, leaving you feel like a slimy swamp thing. There are days down here where it can even feel hard to breathe because the air is so thick. Days where it's too hot to play outside. Days where it feels like you could cut through the air with a knife. So during a good old East Texas summer, outdoor activities become pretty limited to those that involve water or that take place when the sun starts going down, which brings on its own set of problems altogether. Well, rather than said, I should say swarm, because that's when the nightly mosquito raids begin. The moisture in the air makes East Texas prime breeding ground for mosquitoes. And they don't play. So when three young men offered James Byrd Jr. of Jasper, Texas, a ride as he was walking home in the steamy East Texas air in June of 1998, I'm almost positive he was more than happy to accept and probably didn't put a whole lot of thought into the decision to climb into the back of that gray pickup truck. There was no way for him to know that it was a decision that would end up costing him his life. I'm Krista. And you're listening to Episode 7 of Lone Star Law and Disorder. June 7th, 1998 was just like any other summer Sunday morning in Jasper, Texas. It was a little before 8 a.m. when Cedric Green turned his old orange Ford pickup truck toward home down curvy Huff Creek Road just past Jasper's End. Green headed east with the windows down and the radio turned up, surveying the same landscape he saw every day, speckled with old rundown churches and cemeteries every few hundred feet, while occasionally glancing over at the passenger side, where his five-year-old son bounced in the seat beside him. As the old truck climbed to the top of a hill, something in the road caught his attention, just in time for him to swerve to the side and avoid hitting whatever it was. By the time Green realized what it was through the view from his rearview mirror, his son had stood up in the seat to get a closer look through the back glass of the truck. He quickly covered his son's face and screeched to a halt in the first driveway he came to. State Trooper Rodney Pearson had already been with the Texas Department of Public Safety Highway Patrol for about 15 years by the time June 7, 1998 rolled around. That morning was just like any other Sunday morning for him as well, since he'd transferred from West Texas to the East. That morning, it was Sunday morning, early and what I normally did on Sundays, especially with me working the day shift, is I went to the sheriff's department and I would always go and drink coffee with the dispatcher and she would catch me up on the events that went on during the nighttime. So we were sitting there talking and the phone rings, not the 911 phone, just a regular phone line rings. And uh, I could see that she kind of had a funny look on her face. And so she was talking and she was like, okay, well, I'll get somebody out there in just a minute. And she hung up the phone and I was like, what's wrong? And she was like, oh, 
they found a body out at the Huff Creek Cemetery. And, you know, I, I you know, how cops are. I said, well, you know, that's usually where you find bodies is at the cemetery, you know? And she was like, no, Rodney, this one is above the ground. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, my first thought is because it's out in such a desolate area, I said, you know, someone was out there drinking or whatever. They got drunk, they dug up someone's grave, and here's a body. And so I said, you know, I said, it, it can't be that big of a deal. And she said, well, I don't have anybody on. The deputies went up to one of the clubs up north of Jasper, and they had a big brawl up there, and everybody stayed out, and they just went home. And I said, okay. I said, well, it can't be that big of a deal. I'll just run out there and check. And she was like, are you sure? I said, yeah, I'll just run out there. It can't be that big. So I get in the car and I start driving, drive out on the Huff Creek Road, drive out over the Huff Creek Bridge. And, and I noticed whenever I drove in that there was kind of like a, for the lack of a better terms, a drag mark in the road. And I didn't pay that much attention to it. And so I drove and I watched it as it went the whole way. And I drove up to the cemetery. Well, when I pulled up to the cemetery, there was a pickup truck in the middle of the road. And so I got out of the car and walked up to the pickup in front of the pickup. And there's two men standing in front of the pickup truck. And I said, hey, guys, how are y'all good? I said, what's going on? And they said this. And they pointed down at this torso. And I, I was like, oh. I, and so my first thought was, as I looked over in the cemetery and I didn't see any of the graves that I could see from the road disturbed. And I was like, hmm, wonder where this came from. So anyway, there's this, there's this torso where the, the right uh, arm and shoulder and head were missing. So there's just this torso laying there like this, two legs and a, and a, and a left arm. So then everything starts to just kind of run together that something's not right. There was no way for him to prepare to wrap his brain around what had really happened out on Huff Creek Road. And so I'm looking around trying to find this, the head and the shoulder part of this torso. And so as I'm looking around, I don't see anything. And all of a sudden, you, you know how you can be out and you can hear a car coming down the road. Well, this, there was a truck coming down the road and it was like coming super duper fast. So we're at the crest of a hill. So about that time, this truck pulls up and it was a, uh, middle-aged black man in the truck and he gets out of the truck and he is white as a sheet. And I said, uh, Hey, what's, what's wrong? And he said, uh, and you know, everyone knew me around there. And he said, Hey, Mr. Pearson, there's a guy's head and shoulders down here in my yard. And I said, I said, no, no way. I'm not going to tell you really what I said, but I said, no. And he, he's like, yes, sir. I'm telling you. And I said, okay, take me to where it is. And so we turned around and went back down the road about a mile and pulled up in his driveway. And I got out of my car, he got out of his truck and we walked over and he said, look right here and right by this culvert is this head and, sh and shoulder and one arm. And I'm thinking, oh, this really isn't good. I knew, I knew then that it wasn't that simple. That drag mark turned out to be a trail of smeared blood that led from the victim's torso to the detached upper portion of the victim's body, which was found about a mile to a mile and a half away, lying in a ditch 
at the bend in the road, where it appeared to have been severed by the jagged edge of a concrete culvert right where it lay. So I called the dispatcher that I had been sitting with, and I said, hey, where is the sheriff? And she said, he's on his way to Dallas or somewhere to a police Olympics, a golf tournament. I said, well, call him and tell him that he's got to come back to me right now. I've got to see him right now. And she's the, well, she's on a step ahead of you. I already told him kind of what was going on or what, what I knew. And he's on his way. He should be to you in about 20 minutes. So I'm standing out here and I'm still, this is not real. So he pulls up and uh, it's Billy Rolls. He pulls up and he's just one of those type of people, man, woman, child, it doesn't matter. He didn't meet a person with a handshake. He met a person with a hug. So he came over and hugged me like he always does. And he's like, hey, man, what's up? And so I told him what I've just told you the last few minutes. And he said, well, you know what? He said, as I was driving in here, I saw it looked like a drag mark in the road. And I said, yeah. And so he says, "Uh, hey, he says, uh, I think there was an auto pedestrian accident. This is what I'm thinking. And he said, I think the guy got caught under, uh, I, I think he got caught under the car and got drugged. And I was like, no. I said, no, Sheriff. I said, no, Billy. I said, this, this is something more than this. For one, there were no skid marks that one might expect from a classic hit and run. Typically, a driver will stop to at least try and see what they've hit. That there's just no way. I said, something else has happened other than, than just an auto pedestrian. I said, no one gets caught under a car for a mile and a half. And he said, well, it just went down the road a little bit. Let's me and you walk. The blood trail continued west for about a mile and a half more until it seemed to disappear into the woods at the entrance of an old logging path. Well, that just down the road, we walked a mile and a half where this Drag mark goes on the road, comes off the road, goes on the road, comes off the road, till we get down to the Huff Creek Bridge and the drag mark just disappears. And I was like, that's kind of weird. And so he's on the phone now because even though he didn't want me to see it, curiosity, I think, has started setting in with him. So he called a buddy of his that worked for the FBI, and he's telling him this story. So as he's doing that, I'm walking around looking, and I walk over to this little logging road, I guess. And you, I said, hey, Billy, I said, this is where that drag mark comes out. And he was like, okay. And he said, well, I'm going to call you back. We, Rodney found something else. We're going to walk down here. They made their way down the path until they reached a clearing. Along the way, they spotted multiple items that were very obviously out of place. Things like dentures, keys, a shirt, an undershirt, and a watch. So we walked down this road a little bit, got down, I don't know, two or 300 yards probably, and we found uh, some tools, uh, some keys, just a bunch of stuff. And so uh, we walked a little bit further, and you could see in the grass where the truck had gotten stuck. At the clearing in the woods, they came up on a noticeable area of matted grass and upturned dirt that suggested to them that some kind of struggle had taken place there. In that clearing, they discovered even more evidence. They collected beer bottles, a carton of cigarettes, cigarette butts, and a can of fix-a-flat, a CD, a baseball cap, and a can of black spray paint. But most notably, they collected a set of small wrenches in a case with the name Barry written in cursive, and a Zippo-style lighter with inscriptions of possum, 
with the two S's in the shape of lightning bolts, and three K's formed into a triangle. Also included amongst those items was a wallet that contained identification for one James Bird Jr. And then we walked a little bit further around the corner, I'd say another 100 yards or so, and that's where we found Bird's wallet, and that's how we positively identified him. Billy opened it up, and his ID was there, and he popped the ID out, and it said James Bird Jr., and that's how we identified him. It was just laying there. Even though Bird's wallet was found at the crime scene, his body was so badly disfigured that positive identification had to be made through fingerprints. Well, that's when, when we found the wallet, that's when he called his buddy back from the FBI, and that's kind of when the Calvary started coming. News of a murdered black man on Huff Creek Road spread fast. So Bird's family had already heard. But it wasn't until they watched the sheriff and his deputy, accompanied by the county mortician, solemnly approaching their door, that they knew it was James. James Bird was born on May 2nd, 1949, in Beaumont, Texas, the third of eight children born to Stella and James Bird Sr. He grew up in Jasper, where his family was heavily involved in the Baptist Church. His mother taught Sunday school, and his father was a deacon, while James Jr. sang and played the piano and multiple other instruments. Some said there wasn't an instrument he couldn't play. He was a jokester and was always doing something to make his friends laugh. As playful as he could be, though, James was actually described as a well-disciplined child. He attended Rowe High School and played in the band until he graduated in 1967 with an excellent academic record in the last racially segregated class in the area. He was well-liked by students and teachers alike. He was also well-liked by the ladies. In 1968, James set his sights on a young lady by the name of Thelma Adams. While his sisters went on to college, James stayed behind in Jasper and pursued Miss Thelma until the day she said, I do. James and Thelma would go on to have three children together, two girls and a boy. He'd supported his family as a vacuum salesman, but he'd also struggled with alcoholism in his lifetime and he'd served several stints in prison for offenses like petty theft, forgery, and parole violations. He wasn't perfect, but nobody is. We all have our own kinds of demons to fight on a daily basis, and we all have at least one skeleton scratching at the doors of our closets. Nonetheless, a combination of the issues ultimately resulted in his marriage to Thelma ending around 1993. His family had a saying about James. He never hurt anybody but himself. Around 1996, James decided it was time to take control back over his life and started attending meetings at Alcoholics Anonymous. At 5 foot 9 inches, 160 pounds, and a noticeable limp he suffered as a result of a childhood accident, Bird had become a familiar fixture around town over the years, where he was often seen walking the streets or accepting rides. He didn't own a car because of a disability, so he was just one of those guys everybody knew. He was naturally sociable and jovial. He was a people person and a born entertainer. He was the type of person that's easy to like and hard not to like. He got where he needed to go and never bothered anyone. 
James had spent the evening of Saturday, June 6th at a bridal shower for his niece, where he played with his grandson and celebrated with the family. When his sisters decided to leave, he decided to catch a ride with them and had them drop him off at a friend's house about three miles from his own home. For the next few hours, he visited, danced, and joked with even more of his friends. But as the party wound down and he got ready to call it a night, he couldn't find a ride. So he set off walking towards home the way he always did. A ways down the road, James did manage to catch a ride home with three local men, Sean Barry, William King, and Lawrence Brewer. But he wouldn't make it home that night. Sean Barry met William King in the early 90s. They had both dropped out of school and started hanging out with each other in the town of Kirbyville, about 20 miles from Jasper. They were up to no good from the get-go. In October 1992, the two were convicted of burglarizing a jukebox warehouse. They were sentenced to 10 years, but were able to complete a 90-day boot camp aimed at scaring first-time offenders away from the criminal lifestyle. Barry managed to stay out of trouble for quite a while, but King violated his parole, and in June of 1995, he was sent to a maximum security prison near Houston. Lawrence Brewer had already been convicted of burglary once and was sentenced to 15 years for drug possession in 1989. He was released in 1991, but violated parole in 1994 and was returned to prison, the same prison as William King. King was paroled in July of 1997 and returned to Jasper, a changed man. Apparently, while in prison, King had found his way into a gang and found a place for himself in the thriving subculture of racist hate groups. Much of his body was covered in tattoos that were blatantly racist. The words Aryan pride were etched in bold black letters across his torso underneath the Confederate flag and a shield with the Nazi SS symbol emblazoned on his chest, along with a cross with a black man hanging from it. In May of 1998, Barry had moved into King's apartment in Jasper. Near the end of that same month, Lawrence Brewer, fresh out of prison, moved in too. Like King, Brewer sported numerous tattoos proudly proclaiming his loyalties and beliefs and displaying his membership in the Confederate Knights of America an organization affiliated with the Ku Klux Klan. The sad thing is, it is our, our prison system. They can't help it and everything. And, and all they do is sit in there because they ain't got nothing else to do but to breed hate. And that's why there's so many killings and stuff going on in the prison, which it, a lot of it doesn't get advertised. But there's a lot of that that goes on because you get these gangs or people that think they're in a gang and they start doing stuff like that, and then they come out here in the real world and like, well, I ain't got my buddies, so I'm gonna have to make me a little group. By the time they came across James Bird Jr. walking down Martin Luther King Drive, the three of them had been staying together in the same apartment for three weeks. So that was Sunday. And then as we, like I said, as the everybody, his deputies started waking up, because now it's probably getting close to about noontime now. And it, like I said, this started like at 820, and it's it's probably an easy lunchtime now. 
So, yeah, and it got nice and hot. So his deputies came and they started collecting evidence like those keys and tools. So this was this is kind of how the break in the case came. One of the tools that we found had Sean Barry's name engraved on it. Later that night, after news of Bird's death had spread, Steve Scott, a Jasper resident, showed up at the sheriff's department. There, Scott told police that he had seen Bird walking on Martin Luther King Drive in Jasper at around 2 a.m. that morning. Scott had been out dancing at a club in Beaumont. He'd thought about offering Bird a ride, and normally he would have. But that night he changed his mind. He thought to himself that Bird was probably drunk, and he was tired after the hour-long drive and just wanted to go home. Shortly after, between 2.30 and 2.45, Scott again saw Bird on Martin Luther King Drive, but this time, he was riding in the bed of a dark gray or black pickup truck, and there were three other men in the cab of the truck. Scott's description of the truck, along with the name written on the wrench case, led police to Sean Barry. So it had, that's, that's kind of the break in the case. So they kind of put the hunt out looking for, looking for Barry. He was a person of interest because of the tools. One of the deputies found Barry. He he was driving down the road somehow and uh, may have been in the truck that, that they were in. So when they when they did that, they did find out that he had an open traffic warrant. So one of one of the deputies seen him driving around and said, hey, here's our chance to get to talk to him. We're going to arrest him on this traffic charge. The following evening, police stopped Barry on a warrant for a traffic violation in his primer gray pickup truck, where they discovered a set of tools matching what had been found at the crime scene. They arrested Barry, confiscated the truck, and took him straight to the sheriff's department. And it didn't take long for Barry to start talking. So uh, they take him to the sheriff's office and take him in the interrogation room and say, you know, you're here for this traffic ticket, but... We found some tools out at the Huff Creek area where James Bird went missing. You know anything about that? And Barry broke down and started crying and said, yeah, I do. And he sung like a little canary and told him everything. The story he told was nothing short of a nightmare. And for the Bird family, along with the town of Jasper, that nightmare was just beginning. So he, in in his deal, I wasn't in the rooms, but I'm going to tell you what I know. So what happened was, is is, uh, when they took him in, they asked him what happened. And he said him and King and Brewer was out driving around and they were driving down MLK Saturday night and they seen Bird walking. And Sean said, hey, you know, I'm going to stop and pick Bird up. He At the time, he was driving. I'm going to pick Bird up and take him home. So he picks him up and takes him home. We're going to take him home. According to Barry, Bill King was furious. I think King or one of them said, hey, your dad, your some of your family members has got some land out there in Huff Creek. Why don't we go out there and party with him a little bit before we take him home? After pulling over to a convenience store to use the restroom, Bird switched places with two of the men. Bird inside the truck, and King and Brewer in the back. Barry drove out to a tract of land off Huff Creek Road and down the old logging path. Several minutes later, King banged on the top of the vehicle and yelled at Barry to stop. Barry stopped the truck on the logging road just outside of town. So they drive out there, they start drinking, doing whatever it was they were doing. 
Bird says, I want, I'm ready to go home. King and Brewer yanked Bird from the truck. Well, King says, well, the only way you're going to go home is if you, if you whip me. And so uh, he was like, no. And, you know, he used some other graphic language in there. But uh, and you can put the, those pieces together. And so he's, he was like, no. And so they wind up fighting and King knocks him out. When he hit the ground, that's when his wallet fell out. So that's why the wallet was there. Barry would deny any active participation in what happened next. Because what happened next was an extreme act of violence that would horrify the entire world. And in fact, it would attract intense international attention. And media from as far away as Japan would soon descend on the Little East Texas town with a population of only 8,200. The two white men beat Bird without mercy, viciously kicking him in the head and torso. Brewer grabbed a can of black spray paint from the back of the truck and sprayed it in Bird's face. And to make sure they added insult to injury, they pulled his pants down around his ankles before wrapping his legs with a towing chain that they attached to the back of the truck. The men then proceeded to drive down Huff Creek Road at a high speed with James Bird Jr. dragging along behind them. So they hook him to the truck and they take off. Well, I told you earlier in the story about the the, the stuck, the where that looked like the part where the truck got stuck. He came loose from the truck somehow. Well, they stopped to rechain him and backed off the road. Well, they backed over him when they backed up. They, they backed off the road, uh, got stuck, and the way Sean uh, Berry tells it is Brewer got really agitated when this happened. So when they pulled back over him, they stopped, and Brewer said, I'm going to make sure that he doesn't come off, and then ties the chain to him to make sure that he doesn't come loose. So then they start driving, they stop again to make sure that he's hooked, and that's when the tools and the keys fall out, about another 100 yards. So then they, they take off driving again, they come out, and then they start going eastbound on the Huff Creek Road, because Huff Creek Road run, runs east and west. Now I feel it necessary to stop right here and give due warning about what you're about to hear. The details are graphic and gruesome, but they're also necessary. They're necessary to show what raw hatred, and sometimes worse, plain old indifference, can do. Many people saw what was done to James Byrd Jr. as a symptom of a much bigger issue that plagues our society. And their point would be valid. In truth, the choice of Huff Creek Road and basically the disposal of the body in front of Huff Creek Cemetery is not lost on me. It's not a coincidence. Huff Creek Road is inhabited by primarily black families, and Huff Creek Cemetery was known as an old black cemetery. The choice in location was meant to send a message. Racism exists all over America, all over the world for that matter. But even some of the biggest racists I've ever met would tell you, oh no, I'd never do something like that. The truth is, if King Brewer and Barry had simply wanted Bird dead, they could have just killed him on the spot. But that's not what they wanted. They wanted to make Bird pay. Pay for some perceived personal injustice committed by all black people of the world. They wanted Bird to suffer. And suffer he did. Because what those three men did to James Bird Jr. was torture. Nothing short of a modern-day lynching. So there you are. 
You've been warned. Again. They come out, and then that's when uh, Sean says that either Brewer or, or King, one of them, said, hey, look at him flopping back there. And they used some other acronyms and said that he was going from side to side uh, of the road. That's where the drag mark came in because they were kind of swerving in the road. Well, this was a long change, and he'd go off the road, come back up on the road. So he goes off the road when when they go into a hard right curve, he'd go off in the grass on the left side. They go in, they did that a couple of times. And then when they went up there where we found his, his head and shoulders, he came, there was a hard left curve and he came off the road and went down in the, in the ditch. And there was a broken culvert right there. And that's what severed his head and shoulder. Just like you, just like you took a, sword and just took it on the right side of, or the left side of someone's head about their shoulder and just chopped as hard as you could and I'm telling you it was just a smooth clean cut now keep keep in mind that yeah they were probably running 50 or 55 or 60 miles an hour when this happened so so it, it was instant the autopsy of James Bird Jr. revealed the most extensive of injuries to every part of Bird's body in addition to the massive brush burn abrasions, or road rash as it's more commonly known, over most of Bird's body, nearly all of Bird's interior ribs were fractured. Both testicles were missing, and gravel was found in the scrotal sac. Both knees and a part of his feet had been ground down. His left cheek was ground to the jawbone, and his buttocks were ground down to the sacrum and lower spine. Some of his toes were missing, and others were fractured. Large lacerations of the legs exposed muscle, and lacerations and abrasions around the ankles were consistent with the ankles having been wrapped by a chain. The examination revealed that Bird had been alive for most of the dragging. The regions around the area where Bird's upper body and lower body were separated indicated that Bird's heart was still pumping and that he was still alive when his body was torn apart by the culvert. What's worse? The pathologist determined that some of the wound shapes and patterns indicated that Bird was conscious while he was being dragged and was trying to relieve the intense pain by rolling and swapping one part of his body for another. An absence of injuries to Bird's brain and skull suggested that he was trying to hold his head up while being dragged. So just to paint you a bigger picture so that you'll know this, the, his two arms, the his elbows were ground off like smooth. If you could take your your elbows and set them on the table and put them at about a 40, your hands at about a 45 degree angle. His, his elbows were, were ground off smooth at, at the bottom, just like if you would lay your hand flat at that 45 degree angle, it was, it was just a flat mark. It wasn't round as like you hold your arm up and see your elbow, it, no. After Barry gave his statement to police, King and Brewer were arrested almost immediately, and law enforcement began building their case. Well, the FBI got there. So uh, 
I got with one of the FBI agents and we walked that mile and a half stretch and and they took samples of body part, body of hair. I mean, yeah, just whatever was in those drag marks. They took samples of it to make sure that it was from the person that we thought it was from. So anyway, the FBI comes and collects the blood and tissue and all that to make sure that it's who, who we say we are and who we think it is and all of this. So, yeah, it was it was a big deal. Justice had to be swift on this one. Nobody wanted to be under that spotlight for long. The state would charge Barry, King, and Brewer with capital murder, causing the death of a person while committing the offense of aggravated kidnapping. According to Texas Penal Code 20.04 for aggravated kidnapping, a person commits an offense if he or she intentionally or knowingly abducts another person with intent to hold him for ransom or reward, use him as a shield or hostage, facilitate the commission of a felony or the flight after the attempt or commission of a felony, or inflict bodily injury on the person abducted or abuse him sexually, or terrorize him or a third person, or interfere with the performance of any governmental or political function. The act of chaining Bird to the truck and dragging him for a mile and a half was, by itself, kidnapping under the law. Dragging Bird from a truck constituted the use of deadly force to restrain Bird and prevent his liberation. As I already mentioned, Bird's injuries revealed not only that he was alive during at least half of his torturous journey, but also that he was conscious for most, if not all, of that time attempting to hold his head up and relieve the pain of the asphalt scraping and tearing his skin away. Bird was made to suffer the most cruel and horrific pain before he was actually killed. So their conduct constituted the intent to inflict bodily injury and terrorize Bird as well. And it didn't matter whose conduct was worse than the others. Prosecutors would charge all three men using the law of parties. Under Texas law, a defendant can be found guilty as a party to capital murder, regardless of whether he or she personally inflicts the fatal injury. So if you're present for and complicit in an offense, you can be held equally responsible. Texas Penal Code Statute 7.02, subsection 2, says that if a person solicits, encourages, directs, aids, or attempts to aid the other person to commit the offense, whether by words or by actions, then they're criminally liable as well. Under this statute, a jury could convict if it found that any one of the three men was present at the commission of the offense and encouraged its commission by words or by other agreement. The evidence would support the statute. DNA testing revealed that the blood spatters underneath the truck and on the truck's tires matched Bird's DNA. In the bed of the truck, police noticed a rust stain in a chain pattern and detected blood matching Bird's on a spare tire. Three of the four tires on the truck were different makes. Tire casts were taken at the fight scene and in front of the cemetery where Bird's body was found, and were found to be consistent with each of the tires on Barry's truck. DNA analysis of three cigarette butts taken from the fight scene and the logging road would establish Barry, King, and Brewer as both major and minor contributors. DNA from one of the cigarettes contained the DNA of King and of James Bird Jr. Police and FBI agents searched the apartment that Barry King and Brewer shared and confiscated the clothing and shoes of each of the three roommates. DNA analysis would reveal that the jeans and boots that Barry had been wearing on the night of the murder were stained with blood matching Bird's DNA. 
a pair of rugged outback sandals and Nike tennis shoes with the initials LB also bore bloodstains matching Bird's DNA. Law enforcement also confiscated a number of drawings and writings from the apartment. Drawings of scenes like those which depicted three Klansmen riding horses with a noose hanging from a saddle. A white man in a KKK robe, along with a black man, woman, and baby kneeling, and a black man hanging. On top of that, a note written by King to Brewer while awaiting trial in the jail was intercepted by a guard. In the note, King wrote to Brewer, quote, As for the clothes they took from the apartment, I do know that one pair of shoes they took were Sean's dress boots with blood on them, as well as pants with blood on them. As for the clothes I had on, I don't think any blood was on my pants or sweatshirt, but I think my sandals may have had some dark brown substance on the bottom of them. Seriously, though, bro, regardless of the outcome of this, we've made history and shall die proudly remembered if need be. Much Aryan love, respect, and honor, my brother-in-arms. Possum. It wouldn't prove very difficult to build a strong case against the three men. And prosecutors were certain that they would have no trouble getting convictions. The trouble was what happened in the tiny town of Jasper in the weeks following the murder and leading up to the first trial. In the days and weeks after the murder of James Byrd Jr., at least 200 journalists swept into the area. Being the tiny town it is, and given its location on the map, Jasper fit far too easily with the typical southern backwoods stereotype. Suddenly, this little timber town in East Texas was thrust into the national spotlight and under a microscope being viewed worldwide through the lens of southern racial history. Some cast the town and the surrounding area as a cesspool of racists and hate. Others thought that the town of Jasper was being unfairly portrayed and forced into a collective guilt, for lack of better words. Forced to share in the responsibility of the murder. I'll give you a little, a little quick history of Jasper. I was the first black highway patrolman that's ever been in Jasper County, ever. So in 92, November of 92, I decided to move to Jasper from, I used to be stationed in Sweetwater. So I divorced my first wife. I said I wanted to get as far away from her as I, as I could and still be in Texas. You know, one of those type of things. And I had a friend of mine that worked for the police department there in Sweetwater that he used to come every year to Sam Rayburn to go fishing. He spent a week or two there. And so he and I were talking and he said, you know what? He said, if I could move anywhere in Texas, he said, I'd move over to Sam Rayburn. And so I was like, I was like, okay. So Jasper was open. So I put my paperwork in, like in a week, they sent it back, said, you've been approved, need to be there December the 1st. So my brother is a retired, he was retired, the chief of the Texas Rangers. So I called him and I was like, hey, we was just chatting. I said, uh, I'm fixing to transfer from Sweetwater. He said, really, where are you going? And I said, Jasper, Texas, and he just got silent. He didn't say nothing. I said, are you still there? He was like, uh, yeah. I was like, what's wrong with you? He said, uh, you realize you fixed to go back in time about 40 years. And I was like, I was like, what? And he was like, yeah, he said, you need to be prepared. And, and you know, the first little bit, it was kind of rocky, but it got better. Uh, you know, I was king of the crop. You know what? I, 
and everybody loved me. I went to everybody's house. I mean, there's people that like Thanksgiving. That was my first time and I had to work Thanksgiving. So all of my family lives in Dallas. So I couldn't go. Several of the people opened their houses up for me. Hey, come to our house and eat Thanksgiving with us. Okay. And you'd never, never know nothing. And that's what I tell when people used to tell me that. And they were like, oh, my God, you're at that racist town. I'm telling y'all, it's not like that. So the people are, I said to me, they're not like that to me. But, of course, you know, you, you had those one or two, for the lack of a better term, quote, unquote, rednecks out there that, you know, you had, I had a couple of those hiccups in the road. Okay, so uh, there's a little uh, country, used to be a little country club up north of Jasper called the Jasper Country Club right up at the city limits. When I moved there, uh, my partner that I worked with was a member at the country club, and I love to play golf. So I said, hey, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go up one day and play golf with you. And he was like, uh, okay, well, we'll go to Rayburn Country. And I was like, okay, well, why come I can't go to the Jasper Country Club? And we were working that night, and he pulled up to go talk to some of his buddies. And when he pulled up at the country club, he said, uh, I'll be back in a minute. And I was like, well, I can't go in with you. He said, oh, no, you you can't go in here. And I was like, really? And he was like, yeah, yeah, no, you you, you can't go in here. I, I'll, just, I'll be back in a few minutes. So when he came out, I was like, okay, look here. Me and you need to straighten something out. Because I was born in West Texas where... I was like, it was like my family and another black family. We were the only black people in town. So I was known just by everybody, you know. And so I said, so why can't I go inside? And he said, well, Rodney, he said, I'm just going to be honest with you. He said, they don't allow black people here at this country club. And I, <laughs> I started laughing. I said, you're you're kidding me, right? And he was like, no, no, no. He said, you, you that's why I tell you that you can't come here and play golf with me. They don't allow black people to play golf. So there's this other man in Jasper, a black guy that I know, and I asked him, and he was like, oh, no. He said, you know, he said, I used to want to play golf up there. And he said, the, the guy that owned the golf course, because he, he took care of the grounds up there. And he said, uh, I wanted to play golf. And he told me, okay, you can play golf. He said, so what I'm going to do is, is I'm going to start closing the club on Mondays and you can go out on the golf course on Monday and play. But Tuesday through Sunday, only time you can go on the golf course is if you're on a lawnmower. And th this was 1993, two or three, when this, this little conversation was happening, long before Bird ever died. Turns out. Jasper was just like any other little town that struggles to examine its own race relations and inequities. And I have to tell you, I, I think, I don't think it was a town per se as much when all that was going on as the news media that blew all of it out of proportion, you know? Uh, and, the, and the news has a horrible way of doing things like that. Because I'm telling you, prior to that happening, it, it wasn't, it wasn't like, and I tell people that and they just kind of look at me like, Sure, dude. No, but it really, it wasn't. I mean, you know, I could go anywhere. You know, I had, I had both black and white friends. I, you know, it, it was, it was nothing. Nobody ever thought anything about it. And then when that happened, and the news came in and spent six or eight months there, you know, there were, you know, there was people from all over the world there. And then, of course, they painted this picture. Oh my gosh, this is how it is. And you know the. 
these guys just drive around looking for someone. It, it wasn't like that. The Reverends Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton would visit the town to speak to mourners at Bird's funeral and to call for healing and racial harmony. Jesse Jackson encouraged citizens to go forward by hope and healing, not backward by hurt and hate. But shortly after, the Ku Klux Klan and the new Black Panthers would come to town with a very different message. The Klansmen had said beforehand that they were coming to Jasper to disavow any connection with the three men charged in Bird's murder. They requested to put on a peaceful rally that was intended to distance the organization from Mr. Bird's murder. Shielded by a circle of state troopers wearing face shields and bulletproof vests, robed in hooded leaders of the Ku Klux Klan branches from Waco and Bider, stood and denounced the murderers, followed immediately by a message that remained pretty typical of traditional Klan rallies, where the leaders warned of black conspiracies, shrinking white political influence and cover-ups by the media, and spewed racial slurs. They were here to protect the white people from the Black Panthers and the black Muslims. A small group of whites in the crowd, most of them from outside of Jasper, applauded and cheered the Klan's speeches, but was drowned out by the jeers of others, both white and black. I don't understand what, what the things we're trying to say here. You know, we had nothing to do with what went on here. None of our groups, anybody affiliated with us. You know, y'all come here, especially the Jew media, want to take pictures and on and on and on. Well, I'll tell you what, you go ahead and take your picture, you remember this face. Because I'll be here today, tomorrow, and forever. That's about all I have to say. Thank you, James Crow. At this time, I'd like to introduce... Mr. Michael O, who is the Grand Dragon for the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. Mr. Michael O. 
I want you to know it is an honor to be in Jasper, in Jasper County. I've met so many wonderful people here that if I had to have a second hometown, it would be Jasper. I'm from Waco, Texas, and I'm proud to be white. I'm proud to be in America, and I'm proud to be here today. And you've earlier heard, we are here to condemn the murder of Mr. Bud. It is a tragedy that should have never taken place, but also a white man lost his life here by a black criminal racist. Must be some of the family members. Here in America, there's a double standard in black. You know, the L.A. riot should have been a wake-up call for America when the Black Panthers and the other radical blacks said they were coming to town with their guns. This should have been a wake-up call for you. They said they were going to take care of the Ku Klux Klan. They'll never be able to do it, but if they could, after they finish with us, they will come after you because of the color of your skin. You know, we are told only white can be racist, but if you are white and drive down the wrong neighborhood in our bigger cities, you'll become victimized. But that is not hate. You know, Senator Kennedy from Massachusetts, he wants to have another hate law brought up on the books. There's a man that could not drive across the bridge without killing a Roman. And when he did get Christian, he said, for eight hours, I was in a daze. The same Kennedy is the same man that want to take away our Second Amendment right so that we cannot protect ourselves from the criminal elements in America. I want you to know that many African Americans hate you because of the color of your skin. And one day, you'll wake up to the fact that you will have to defend yourself. The Klan is a white civil rights group. We are for whites and white only. I make no apology for that. The black has the NAACP and the black looking after them. The Hispanic has the Lulax looking out for them. And the homosexual has AIDS taking care of them. Yeah. Can I hear some clap and applause? Thank you. I want you to know it is a real honor for me to be affiliated with the Knights of the White Camellia out of Vida, Texas. It is an honor to know Mr. Dale Flynn. I promised him I'd keep this short because I could guarantee I could eat up two hours in a heartbeat. But my name is Michael Douglas Lowe. I'm white from Waco, Texas. I'm in the phone book if you'd like to call me. Love to talk to you. Michael Lowe, Waco, Texas. And God bless America. Thank you, Mr. Meanwhile, several blocks away, the new Black Panthers had arrived in town fully loaded. The members marched through the streets, 
some brandishing firearms with live rounds, accompanied by the Texas Rangers. Now on a side note, to be clear, the new Black Panther Party is not the official successor of the Black Panther Party. According to the Southern Poverty Law Center, the new Black Panther Party is a black nationalist group founded in Dallas that's notable for its anti-white and anti-Semitic hatred and whose leaders have encouraged violence against whites, Jews, and law enforcement officers. And we should come with our guns. Don't tell me about one or two people of Jasper. We couldn't even get over here for black people blocking the streets to hug us, to take pictures with us, bringing ice water out for us. Don't tell me, Cracker, about one or two black people that you talked to who told you that they didn't want us here, who had been intimidated and terrorized by the Pecker Woods in this area. No good so really what happened was you know after the the dragging and all of that and the media you know went on for weeks and weeks and weeks and then that's when the Ku Klux Klan announced that they were going to come to town and have a peaceful rally up on the courthouse square and, you know, once they did that, then Quan LX and the Black Panthers said, well, we're coming to town the same day. Uh, we're going to do the same thing. So they talked to the police chief at the time, and he told them, you know, of course, the Black Panthers, they come with their guns and all that. Because, you, you know, just me, Rodney's opinion, you know, they, they uh, wreak violence, I guess is an easy way to say so they came with their their guns and, you know, and the, the, the police chief said, you can come and march, but you will not carry any loaded guns in my in my town. So they they naturally show up uh, over at the sheriff's office uh, and then they're going to march down Martin Luther King and all of that. Well, the Texas Rangers walked with them at the time because they they walked, I don't know, a couple of miles. Uh, once they got out of their car, you know, what's the first thing they did? They loaded their guns, you know, and they say, you know, that's our right to bear arms, blah, 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 blah. So they started doing their march over on the north side of town while the Klan was setting up for their rally on the courthouse steps. The citizens of Jasper didn't want one side or the other. They wanted to find somewhere in the middle.
Panthers made their little march all the way around town and came and uh, the police department and the sheriff's department, the DPS, everybody had barricaded the uh, driving up anywhere within two blocks of the courthouse. So the Panthers, the Panthers got to the uh, barricade and they said, oh, we're going up to the courthouse square. And they were like, no, you're not. And they busted through the barricades and here they came up to the uh, to the courthouse where we were all standing guarding the, the uh, Klu Klux Klan. So I, I can honestly I can honestly tell you and I tell everybody this. I have never in my whole 21 years at the time of being a state trooper had never, ever, ever been afraid to go to work as much as I was the day that the Klan and the Panthers showed up at the same day. And then the, the sad part about it was, is I was on, on our civil disturbance team, our riot team. And so they put us right in between the two of them. And I'm thinking, you know, here's, here's this guy back here behind me shouting racial slurs and stuff. And here I am standing here defending him against the Black Panthers. You know, what's, what's wrong with this picture? I'm, I'm thinking to myself as I'm standing here. Our captain told us, he's, well, you know what? He said, as sad as it may be, he said, we can't turn our backs on anybody. And you can look in the books and stuff and see all of us troopers, and you, you can see the look on some faces that, that things wasn't good. People on the outside thought this town was going to self-implode and go up in flames. But it didn't. Jasper kept its calm. Because while the two hate groups had been preparing to meet on the grounds of the old courthouse, Bird's family had issued a call for peace to the public. Hate begets hate, and the Bird family would not allow it. In the days and weeks after the murder, the Bird family called for calm, saying, We're not hating. We're hurting. In a statement released to the public prior to the arrival of the two groups, the family wrote, Let this horrendous violation of the sanctity of life not be a spark that ignites more hatred and retribution. Rather, let this be a wake-up call for America, for all Americans. Let it spark a cleansing fire of self-examination and reflection. That was, I thought, the worst day of my life as being a, a trooper. I was really afraid that day because I thought violence and shooting and killing and lots of things was going to happen, but somehow it didn't. And so the confrontation between the Klan and the Panthers passed without incident. So once they showed up, the Panthers showed up, then the, the Klan retreated and went into the courthouse, uh, went through the courthouse to the south side where they were parked and got in their vehicles and were uh, trying to get out of town, for the lack of a better term. William King and Russell Brewer were sentenced with the death penalty, while Sean Berry was given life in prison for cooperating with law enforcement. Lawrence Brewer was executed by lethal injection in September of 2011. King's conviction and death sentence remain under appeal. Those guys, uh, they just had some, some, some really bad, had one had, others still have bad uh, hate issues, you know, for whatever reason, you know, and, and I don't know if it was something that, you know, that they were, they were raised with or if it was more, I think it was more that came up in the prison system because I'm just going to say this as a human being. You know, you're not, you're not born a racist. You're not, not that, that's a choice that people make. 
you know, and, and a lot of people use that as a crutch. It's all, well, that's just the way that it's been. No, it's not the way that it's been. It's a choice that you make. And those guys made the choice that they did to be that way. You know, that's, that, that's Rodney's opinion. I mean, I, I just don't, I don't think that, you know, when we were all raised or when we were all created by the Lord, he said, you know what, you know, I'm just being hypothetical. I'm going to make Rodney Pearson a racist. You know, I think that's the way he needs to be. I don't think the Lord made us that way. I think that is something that is learned from, you know, your, your peers, uh, whatever reason that that's, that's my take on that. Cause I don't understand how, someone can do that to another human being. I mean, I don't even know how someone could do that to a dog, less than on another human being. Seeds of hate have to be planted. They have to be nurtured to grow stronger and be harvested to be used, only to start the process all over again with the next crop. But then so goes the same for love. Love is worth dying for. Hate is not. I can almost guarantee you that a small army of love will march much longer and much further than a big army of hate. They have before, and they will again. The Bird family will always bear the scar of what was done to their loved one, but they've healed themselves in ways that I've personally never experienced. As a prime example, prior to Lawrence Brewer's execution, Ross Bird, James Jr.'s son, has advocated against the death penalty, stating that the family doesn't want to see another man die from this situation. Accompanied by Martin Luther King III, Ross visited Sean Barry in prison to talk with him in order to find some closure and find forgiveness. You know, there's some strong-willed, you know, God-believing people that you can sit after you've seen a family member of yours done the way that he's done and then for them to sit and say that they forgive him. You know, I, I, I commend them for that. Bird's family was able to take what happened to their loved one and move for a positive change. With the help of state senators and congressmen and women, Bird's daughters and sisters were able to pass the James Bird Jr. Hate Crimes Act in Texas, which adds harsher sentencing penalties if it's proven that the crime was committed against a person with a bias against their perceived race. The law also provides law enforcement officers filing reports to indicate whether the crime may have been based on bias. Eight years later, in 2009, President Barack Obama signed the Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Jr. Hate Crimes Prevention Act, which expanded the federal hate crimes law to include crimes motivated by sexual orientation, gender identity, or disability. Following Byrd's death, his family established the James Byrd Foundation for Racial Healing, which conducts diversity workshops, awards scholarships to minorities, and runs an oral history project with more than 2,600 personal stories about racism. The city of Jasper also responded to Bird's tragic murder. On January 20th, 1999, townspeople removed a wrought iron fence that had separated the graves of black and white people in Jasper City Cemetery for well over 100 years. The city also erected a park in his honor, the James Bird Jr. Memorial Park. know what the cure is for racism or for hate for that matter i don't even know if there is a cure but i do know that it starts with love and i know that it starts with us
Racism and prejudice and hate crimes have existed for centuries. It's not something we're proud of. Well, most of us. But we can't erase the past just because we don't like it. And we can't turn back the clock and try it again. And no amount of guilt is going to make it disappear. But we don't have to accept it as representative of ourselves and who we are as a person, as an individual. We have to know the past to understand the present. We don't have to be held nor hold ourselves as prisoners of it. We can use what we know to make positive changes now. If we can do that, love wins. That's all for this episode of Lone Star Law and Disorder. Before we go today, I want you all to do me a favor. I want you to go to the discussion page and check out my pinned post about my fundraiser for Texas EquiSearch. Even if you can't donate, at least educate yourself and spread the word. This foundation does great work for a great cause, and it needs our community's help. I also want to give a special shout out to Whiskey Boy Radio Variety Podcast out of the Dallas-Fort Worth area for inviting me to their show for an awesome interview. I had a lot of fun with Whiskey Boy and the Hammer. You can go give them a listen on iTunes and Google Play. If you want to get to know a little bit more about yours truly, go check out their podcast and listen to the June 20th episode, WBR number 288, Border Trouble, True Crime, and Spoiled Milk. See you next time.